Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast. You know the deal. We're produced in partnership with SubChina, which is the best way to get all the important news from China, whether you subscribe to our excellent SubChina Access newsletter or you just frequent the website. It is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is, say it with me, reshaping the world. Woohoo! All right. Hello, New York. I am Kaiser Guo, and today I am turning my interviewer's gaze on my dear friend and co-host of the show. For many years, he's been cheech to my chong. He's been my partner in crime for, for gosh, a long time. I've made fun of him in, in, in hundreds of show openings, but that's only because I love him, of course. Uh, today is a chance to find out what you've always wanted to know about this guy. So it was uh, about 1997 or 98, I think, when I first met Jeremy. It may have been at a rock show. I may have been playing. Uh, it was maybe, I think... I'm, I'm thinking it's more likely it was at one of those clubs uh, that, believe it or not, both Jeremy and I used to frequent in the late 90s. I think it, this place was called Club Vogue. Neither of us would be caught dead today in such a place, respectable middle-aged people that we are. Uh, anyway, there he was, this skinny guy in a Jufro, and he would just be boogieing down. I mean, just like busting some seriously, I'm not kidding you, like amazing dance moves. I don't know if we could coax him into doing something for us here tonight. Uh, but, you know, really impressive, sort of God. And then out of nowhere, he would just suddenly launch into a backflip. I mean, he would, like, do a backflip. No injuries resulted it, to him or to anyone nearby. It was kind of amazing uh, that he was able to pull this off. I, I actually thought that maybe my drink had been tampered with, uh, and I wasn't sure that, that I had just witnessed what. But then I saw it happen again uh, in various venues. And uh, I knew that Jeremy was part of this crew, a very cool crew back then, uh, which was th this this uh, dominant back then dominant expatriate English language magazine called uh, Be the Beijing Scene, which was just uh, great back in its day. Over the years, uh, we got to be friends. We got to be you know partners in crime. We ended up as uh, part in part of the same social circle, in part because you know expatriate life in Beijing was, was kind of small. It was kind of a, a huge city and a small town at the same time. Um, and there were like five places where everybody went. Uh, Jeremy already had become something of a legend. He, he had this thing he would do, for example, on New Year's Eve, where at the stroke of midnight he would strip down into his, in his skivvies and then jump into Hohai Lake, like in the freezing cold Hohai Lake. And he did this, you know, on several years, including the, the, the millennium, where unfortunately I heard about it secondhand because I was uh, down in Shanghai for whatever reason. But uh, yeah, there he was. He was also somebody, though, whose perspectives and ideas struck me as quite original. Uh, he didn't simply map onto the politics of the world that I came from or, or really onto the politics of the China that we both lived in at the time. Um, you know, he would occasionally bust out an interesting phrase of Latin, which he'd most of the time have to explain to me. Uh, he had Latin, as they say. Uh, I took a, a real shine to the guy. Uh, one evening, I was at home with my then-girlfriend, who was this kind of hard-ass uh, Wall Street Journal reporter, really like a tough-as-nails woman, a really great reporter, a really brilliant woman. And uh, I said to her, I told her I was enthusing, as I am wont to do, about this friend of mine, Jeremy. And I said, you know, you really ought to, to talk to the guy, maybe have lunch. You guys would really hit it off. He's really brilliant. He's got, you know, really original ideas. And she just sort of rolled her eyes as far back and, and let out this exasperated sigh and said, Kaiser, I don't have time for your surfer, backpacker, South African friends. Uh, but I, I, I persisted, I persisted, uh, and she eventually did have lunch with him and came back and uh, admitted that I had been completely right, that she was, she was then a Jeremy fan. Uh, 
She didn't have time for him. I have plenty of time for him, right? And I think all of us do too. Let's bring him up on stage right now and everyone give a warm welcome to Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. Do you me? All right, so you're, you're determined to make me a schmaltzy American, huh? <laughs> it's working, it's working. Slowly. Uh, okay, so let's look. We, you know, we've heard you on the show talking about how you were sort of this uh, recent college graduate from Johannesburg, South Africa, and the, you know, he decided that he just wanted to get the hell out of there, and he went as far away as he possibly could. So, but, but something must have drawn you, Jeremy, to, to China. Something also must have made you want to stay. What got its hooks into you finally about China? Well, I think the, you, I mean, I just wanted to get as far away from home as possible, you know, in every sense of the word, physically and culturally, and China met that. Um, uh, it took me a little while to actually like China. I, I didn't like it at all the first year I was there, but I found it, I was frustrated by not being able to understand what was going on around me, and so I wanted to stay, and then that sort of obsession of trying to understand what was going on around me just kept me there because I kept on not understanding. And to this day, <laughs> I still seek <laughs> to understand China. I mean, I think that's part of what keeps me interested in it. Right. One mystery, though, I actually, I don't think I've ever asked you this directly because I, and I don't know the answer to it, is how did you learn Chinese? Because I don't recall you ever having enrolled in some formal coursework. Did you sort of absorb it osmotically? Was it just sort of in the air? Because now you, you can read these. I've never seen you write more than a few sentences, but I know that you can read. Well, the first year uh, I was there, the, the job that brought me to China, I was teaching English, um, not at a school, but at a factory owned by ABB, a big Swiss-Swedish engineering firm. And the idea was I was supposed to teach the... It was a joint venture, and the middle managers were all guys in their 50s who couldn't speak any English, and they had to interact with the Finnish general manager and production manager. And I was supposed to teach them English, and none of them learned English by the end of the year. Um, but uh, I was actually accommodated not in a nice apartment, but in the workers' dormitory of the Beijing Jingji Jishu Kaifa Chu, the Beijing Economic Technological Development Zone, which was at that point outside, well, it is outside what is now the fourth ring road, but at that point it was countryside with farmers and fields. And there were like a few factories and a workers' dormitory and me and about 100 guys from Anhui and Henan. And I spent the year, they were my friends for that year. So by the end of that year, I could speak really crude and very strange sounding uh, Chinese, but I could make myself clear. So that's why your tones suck is because it was from Henanese people, right? That is my excuse right, anyway. Okay. All right. Yeah. Let, let us let us all not make fun of my country, my, my co-provincials, the Hunanese. They, they they get it bad enough, so we don't need to ladle it on here. Um, at, at one point, did you did you do that epic bike ride though? I mean, I, I've I've heard you talk about it before. Uh, you biked through Xinjiang and in, in, into Pakistan, right? And then all the way into Afghanistan, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I, I worked as an English teacher, and then uh, I had this corporate training job with ABB for another year and a half. So, uh, And I saved up all the money I saved up. 
Um, and then I kind of had, I needed a break from China. I flew to Pakistan and I rode a bike to the Khyber Pass, the Afghan border area, and then up uh, the Karakoram Highway into Xinjiang. And oh, so you went west to east. Okay. Yeah, I went back to Beijing. Uh, I, I was intending originally to go back to Beijing, but uh, after messing around Xinjiang for three months and Qinghai and Tibet for three months, I decided to go downhill to Kathmandu. Um, so I ended in Kathmandu. And the whole thing took about a year. Oh, wow. What, what year was that? That was 97. Okay, 90, so... 96, 90, 97, 97. So presumably then in, in the Khyber Pass, the, the Taliban was already quite active in that, in that region. Well, uh, yeah, I guess they were. I mean, um, they, you know, and Peshawar is the Pakistani city on the, uh, on the Pakistani side right. of the border. And there was this guy named Baba who was running tours into, the, into what they call the tribal areas, which is, I mean, they're technically part of Pakistan, but the Pakistan government has never actually had control over them. And they're run by Pashtun tribesmen, basically. Right, right. Um, so Baba took me into this... Um, uh, to see some of his friends and they were sitting around on the floor of this you know, building of this little room with nails in the walls and there were guns hanging off the walls uh, and we drank Jack Daniels and smoked opium and then went and shot their guns <laughs> <laughs> That's always a safe combination do not try this at and, home, uh, kids. I mean, the, these were more innocent days because at some point I was, you know, quite stoned and high and uh, they started to ask me what religion I was. And I'd be advised in Pakistan that it was okay, you know, to be somebody of an Abrahamic faith. You're people of the book if you're Christian, Jewish or Muslim. It, but it wasn't okay to be an atheist. So I said, I'm Jewish. And they were like, what? And then <laughs> I, I said, Jewish. And they were, what? And then one of them said, ah, Yehud. And then the whole room was going, Yehud, Yehud, Yehud. <laughs> and at, at that point, I sobered up. And I thought, oh, dear. <laughs> Something's going to go wrong. But then we just drank some more Jack Daniels. So it was a very different time, uh, both in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and also, of course, in Xinjiang. <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. So... Here's something that's puzzled me for a long time. For your entire working life, with very few exceptions that, that, that I can think of, basically what you've done is you've created English language content about China. You've done this uh, in all sorts of various guises. I think for, at one point you worked for one of Hong Huang's ventures at this magazine called Red Egg, which was actually in Chinese, so that was the one departure from it. But the rest of the time, you've been doing English content about China for English reading audiences. But at every... At, in every, every incarnation of this, uh, you've complained at one point or another to me how there's this sort of hard ceiling of, of English speakers who are interested in, in content from China and uh, how frustrating it is and how difficult it is to make money, uh, you with your deeply entrepreneurial streak. And yet, what is the, what is the definition of, of insanity <laughs> uh, when you do the same thing again and again and expect different results? Oh, no. What is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> Now, I, I, I'm joking because actually, as we can see just by the, the terrific attendance, that it is possible. Uh, there are a lot of people who are, who are interested, especially now. Uh, but yeah, what, 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 what is it that, that makes you want to do this? Because, I mean, look, I always tell people about this you know, chasm of understanding between China and the United States. I talk in quite earnest tones about how I, it's my mission in life to build bridges of understanding. And I really sincerely believe that. Jeremy, I've never heard you say anything like that. Maybe it's because you're deeply cynical, but why do you keep doing this? Um, well, for, I mean, let me just preface that by saying, I mean, I think things have changed in terms yeah. of the cap on the listen and audience numbers just because, you know, China 
has is so integrated with the rest of the world. And in this particular country where we're currently having a fight with China, I, I think, you know, sad as it may be for many of our, our relationships, uh, people, you know, here who may have deep ties across the Pacific that are feeling under pressure, but for the news business, it's not bad. Um, <laughs> so I see. Maybe so, I am cynical. Okay. Uh, um, <laughs> I, I don't know why I keep doing this. I mean, maybe I just don't know how to do anything else. I think um, the thing is that, um, it's first of all, it's very interesting. And China has never been well covered ever by European or American media. Uh, you know, not that there aren't journalists and writers and scholars who do great work, but if you just think of how much we know about every single city block on Manhattan compared to, you know, vast swathes of China that there's no information at all in English, you know, both swathes physically, but also, you know, culturally or intellectually. Or, you know. um, so that's really interesting. I mean, I think the other thing that I, I've always enjoyed was that the China field is full of people who don't speak their mind. And I first got a taste of what fun it could be to just be honest when talking about China when we did Beijing Scene, which was started by this kind of naughty American guy. And we, we had a language column, I don't know if you remember, called Comrade Language. Oh, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, so, I mean, the idea behind Comrade Language was, at the time, and it hasn't changed that much, unfortunately, but it's changed a lot. Um, the Chinese language textbooks were, like, really, really, really boring, the ones you could get, uh, you know, in Beijing. You know, I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember Gubo and Palanka, the two foreign students <laughs> yeah, who would learn about the four modernizations, you know, and this kind of, this was the, the, the lesson material. So the idea of Comrade Language was, you know, you, you give lessons. How do you tell, how do you end a conversation with a Beijing taxi driver? You know, when they ask, you, 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 you know, as a foreigner, they are, this was obviously all aimed at foreign residents of Beijing. How do you end the conversation as quickly as possible? You know, have you got a Chinese girlfriend? Uh, no, I'm gay. You know, so it would, it, it would teach you that kind of vocabulary. <laughs> um, and, you know, where are you from? Iceland, you know, Bingdao. And, you know, at that time, kind of no one knew where it was, which would also end the conversation. But it started, you know, that would, was a little provocative in a kind of fun way. You know, we did a guide to the vocabulary of drugs in, you know, and this was printed in Beijing. I mean, you couldn't do this thing these days. But anyway. What were uh, the other questions you always get asked? I mean, it's always like, are Jews smarter than Chinese? Yeah. Or, you know, is that North Face jacket you're wearing, is that fake or is it real? How about, <laughs> how much do you make? Yeah. Well, <laughs> how much money do you make? Right, right. Those. But, you know, the same kind of, um, Feeling, I, I suppose it's just um, you know a lot of journalists maybe are driven by a need to stick it to the man. But in the in the field of China, they, everybody tiptoes around the issues so much of the time, and they're either tiptoeing around the issues because they're you know afraid of offending somebody, the Chinese or the Chinese Communist Party, um, or um, sometimes they're not tiptoeing around the issues. They're not really talking the truth because they're overgeneralizing, and uh, you know there's there's so much stuff to say that. Uh, falls in between those that I find interesting. Right. You know, um, just being able to talk the truth about what's going on in China, but also be sympathetic to China at the same time is something that, you know, for some reason pisses a lot of people off. But I, I think it's something we need to be able to do because, you know, right, certainly in this country right now, um, you know, we are in danger of, you know, demonizing all Chinese people, demonizing the country. Um, and 
there's also a problem with you know um, something maybe you want to talk about later. You mentioned, but you know, a generation of older sort of China watchers who are used to a way of talking about China where you're always kind of slightly tweaking the reality to not offend people. The literary translator Eric Abrahamson, I don't know if you remember, he wrote this essay about tweaking, about how a lot of people involved in Chinese cultural and political matters at meetings and at uh, forums will just slightly tweak what they say to soften reality so as to make China somehow seem like a completely normal place in areas where it's not. And that's something I'd like to change. <laughs> Right. And nowadays, of course, there's the, the other kind of tweaking that we do, which is to add a little bit of, of sort of uh, angry uh, polemic into everything that we say just so that we make sure the outrage is sufficient to meet the, the high standards. No, we have that right? problem where China scholars and journalists do feel the need to, yeah, you have to condemn Xinjiang before you can talk about interest rate cuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do that. I mean, absolutely. Uh, look. I, I want to take us back to when I was, gosh, what, what year was it? It was probably 2001 or 2002. I wrote an, an essay for, I had a column in the back page of one of these English language publications, uh, first in uh, the, what was it called? That's Beijing, and then in the Beijinger. The column was called Ich bin ein Beijinger. And I, I wrote one in 2002, I think it was, about how Beijing is kind of a black hole for smart slackers. And I may have had you in mind when I, when I, when I, I wrote that. But how it was that so many of us just sort of came there, uh, just sort of gained a rudimentary grasp of the language, made some friends, and then we, we just sort of got stuck there. We, we were just good enough. I mean, look, the cost of living was as low as the bar was for the skills that you had to have to actually make a decent living. You had to have a, a rudimentary proficiency in the English language and you could get a, a teaching job. It was easy to get a visa and keep you know making those yearly trips out to, to Japan or to Korea or to, to, to Vietnam or to Hong Kong to get it renewed, and then you, you, know, you were back, and you were just sort of living in... You didn't even have to do that. You could call up John the Visa Man, and That's he, right. he'd take your passport to in, in Mongolia, and you know, everything would come back fine. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so I, I'm curious. Uh, back then, uh, it was chi Beijing, China, really was kind of a low-gravity planet. A lot of us landed there with just really kind of sorry sets of skills. I would include myself in that with no... no but some of us... Uh, did make decent lives for ourselves. Um, you were one of that, that crop of what I would call, I think I'm borrowing a phrase from Brendan O'Kane, our dear friend, uh, feral sinologists. You were very feral. I mean, in fact, you learned Chinese from a bunch of workers in Anhui and Henan living in a dorm, right? Uh, that's as feral as it gets. And, and yet suddenly by about 2006 or seven, I was seeing you quoted in just about every piece that was written by any of the major newspapers, every time, especially if they would touch on the internet, which was the, the hot and sexy topic of the day. Um, how did you uh, create for yourself a kind of, uh, of, of, of authority? And uh, how did you become somebody who could be quoted without embarrassment by respectable journalists. Well, I kept doing the same thing, I, I mean, I guess. <clears throat> and, you know, I just, you know, stuck around, you know, what a woody you were there long 90% of success is showing up, you know, and everybody else flaked, <laughs> I guess, all the more talented people. I mean, I, I uh, you know, I worked for Beijing Scene as a managing editor. Right. And because of that, I got to understand how the, um, at that time, sort of, 
you know, emerging a commercial media business works in China. And I understood the lay of, you know, the land, the regulators and who you had to get to know. And I understood how the business worked. Um, and that enabled me to, you know, stay uh, working in that business, either employed by other people or as an entrepreneur, because it was a specialized skill that was useful to people at the time. You guys had some pretty close brushes, though. I mean, I, I think that the tax men showed up and you guys uh, clambered out windows at various points. Oh, yeah. I mean, Beijing scene was getting shut down by the police all the time. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that was pretty uh, bad. But, uh, you so know, you didn't quite navigate it as well as maybe. <laughs> no. <laughs> but you know, I don't think I don't think I ever worked for a company or magazine that got shut down by the police again after that. So, but you did I work for you, you did start one that got blocked by the authorities. Sure, and we'll talk about Danway in a second. But let's let's stick with this. You know, Beijing in the late nineties and the early two thousands and this sort of black hole period. Um, What's changed since then? Something something has clearly changed. I look at some of the young people uh, in of more recent years who've lived in Beijing, and in terms of their professionalism, in terms of I mean, they actually do know how to code, or you know, they actually have uh, advanced degrees in relevant fields. They they speak much better Chinese than you and I ever, ever did. Uh, it's a very different sort of a Beijing now. The, the bar is clearly much higher. They're competing against those same people. I mean, the Haigui, but not just Haigui returnees, but against a lot of people who who were educated in China and speak perfectly good English and are, you know, are compete with them in terms of salary uh, very, very well. What's, what's changed though for you? Well, I mean, that, that's definitely changed now, you know, in the nineties, early two thousands, there were very few Chinese people who knew much about many, you know, Western subjects, whether it was how to make a cocktail, how to, put together a glossy fashion magazine and what should be in it, you know, uh, um, you know, how to write a script for a movie, so, you know, how to do subtitles. So people like us got jobs doing that because nobody else knew how to do them. And right. we kind of had an idea, which was better than everyone else. Right. So that's right. Now the young Chinese kids are, you know, smarter and more talented and more qualified and they understand China better than us. Those jobs and those opportunities are all gone. There is another difference. So it was actually, I mean, there was a barrier to entry to get to China because you you know, unless you already knew people there, you didn't know how easy it was to, like, skirt around the visa system. And it was very intimidating to come to this country. Right. You know, especially if you didn't speak the language, there were far fewer opportunities to learn the language. You had to take the risk. I mean, my, for, for, for many years, the first few years I was in China after I left the workers' dormitory, I lived in technically, well, I don't know if illegal is the right word, but, you know, Beijing still had, um, they were called Shouai, you know, uh, like uh, foreign affairs accommodation. And if you were a foreigner, you were supposed to stay in those. You weren't actually allowed to stay in regular housing. Now, the police weren't really doing anything about it, but they would occasionally. I mean, I got booted out of Huajadi. I don't know if you remember. Uh, that. I remember uh, that. I used to, know, we were neighbors uh, up there. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's changed. Um, and I mean, China's so different. I mean, how can you compare? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were donkey, donkey carts on the second ring road in 1995. And yeah. now, you know, you can't uh, you know, cross it because there are too many Maseratis in your way. Right? I, I drove for years there with no license and, and total impunity. I would get pulled over and just sort of wave a passport at them and pretend I didn't speak. I'd show them my you know American driver's license and say "Guajida, Guajida," and then they would they would they okay I'm, I don't want to bother with this. I'm just gonna let them go. <laughs> it was uh, it was a lot of fun back then. You just like I'm gonna go see a movie. I'm gonna park my car. On the stairs of the movie theater. <laughs> Why not? You know, one has to admit that, you know, be, having a nice time in another person's country because the 
standard of living is low. I mean, it's kind of like looking back, you know, I I mean, the reasons we were having a good time was because all the Chinese people around us were living in horrible little, you know, 60s, not 60s, 70s, 80s apartments and making no money and hadn't traveled and hadn't been to college abroad. Now that that's changed, you know. The situation is different for foreigners, too. Are we humbled, or are we just angry? I mean, are these for- the foreigners who are there now? I, I mean, I, you know, of course I'm going to say I'm humbled. I would never get angry about that. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there are people who are uh, resented. I mean, there was this wave of letters around the time we left China written by sort of relatively prominent expatriates about why the, the I'm why leaving I'm China. Leaving, yeah. And many of them, I felt, were <clears throat> kind of whiny. They were like, oh, I'm not special anymore, you know. I used to get appointments with the you know, vice minister, and now his doorman won't even acknowledge me. I mean, you know, it was that kind of whining. Yeah, I, I remember um, I was interviewed by a, a, a radio magazine uh, in the United States once, and a part of it, they didn't end up using it. They used it as a show bumper, but they, I was walking around in, in the garage of the building that I lived in, and just sort of, he was asking me to name the, the mix and models of the various cars. And I was like, well, that's an Audi A8. There's a, it's a row of three Audi A6s. There's a Maserati. That's a Lamborghini. And, okay, what about your vehicle? Um, yeah, this is my electric bike I bought for 1,800 RMB and they let me park it here which is kind of nice but but no I mean that was emblematic of what how things had changed like suddenly all of our friends were much richer than us and yeah they had <laughs> yeah that was that was uh, definitely humbling but how did we how do some of some of us have gone on and actually stayed attached to China that is like we continue to do work that's really relevant to go back quite a bit I don't I don't think that we wasted our time there in other words just sort of slacking there because I mean I think that's that's part of what's what's good about you as so you you sort of know China at a kind of jetty chi level at a, you know close to the ground right um, I, I would say about you yeah? okay okay you'll take that <laughs> I'll take that. that no I mean maybe you can expand on that I mean do you think that that was an advantage that that maybe we have that I mean, we had a great opportunity to do a lot of different, really amazing things in a time when, you know, China was allowing... Undeserving schmucks like us. Well, no, no, no. It wasn't just foreigners. I mean, um, you know, the late 90s and early 2000s, the government was pretty hands-off about a lot of things. Yeah, Um, that's very true. And, you know, because it was really, you know, uh, it was when the economy was growing the fastest and it was the lead-up to the Olympics, there was this extraordinary sense of excitement uh, uh, um, that was just like a drug. I mean, it, I, oh, I, yeah. I, I remember leaving China like for holidays and stuff and, you know, starting to miss it. And then I'd get back to the Beijing airport and I'd smell that like stinky, polluted Beijing air. I'd be like, yes, <laughs> I'm back. I know, I know the <laughs> feeling well, yeah. It's like I can't taste the air here in America. It's no fun. Yeah, there's no economic progress. There's no pollution. <laughs> Take me home. <laughs> right. Those were thrilling days. Um, it, it was, I, I mean, I remember telling, uh, telling people, you know, Beijing is a truly awful place to live, but there's nowhere in the world I would rather be. This yeah, is just on, yeah. on the yeah. eve of the Olympics. You know, it's the anti-lifestyle capital of the world, I think I used to say. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. I, I should borrow that. Uh, but the arc of your relationship with China has been an interesting one to watch. Shortly before you left, in, you left in early 2015, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you had gotten pretty bitter. I, I think it's fair to say. Um, and I think a lot of that had to do with the fate of the, 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 the website that you had run for a very long time. And so maybe let's start with that. Let's talk about the thing that maybe to this day you're best known for, uh, or you were at least up until sub-China, which was Dan Wei. Danway.org originally and then Danway.com. Uh, Danway.org was 
if for those of you who remember it, uh, we, we started it in 2002, is that correct? 2003. 2003. October is, 24th. Right. So, oh, wow. <laughs> Very good. And uh, Danway was, was really the go-to English language blog on China. It was more than a blog from the very beginning, wasn't it? What was the idea behind Danway? Um, well, uh, the sort of proximate cause of me starting it was I had sort of left the magazine and media business to start a design firm with a couple of friends. Um, and I was working as a partner in the startup design firm, working for clients. Um, and I had thought that, you know, this was great because I could use similar skills as media, except it'll actually make money and maybe the government won't shut it down. You know, this was a <laughs> novel idea. Um, but I, I found it very difficult to do that kind of work because, <clears throat> uh, you know, because it's client services and it's just a miserable existence. Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much. Um, I'm just not very well. Uh, I'm not tactful enough to. Well, I can be very tactful for you know a little very while. short period of time. I, right? I lose my temper. And, uh, it's no good. So um, <laughs> uh, I was very frustrated, and then I started reading a lot of uh, American political blogs. It was um, you know uh, after nine eleven, and uh, there was this uh, extraordinary ferment of sort of discussion, political discussion in the United States, uh, much of it about the Iraq war, both, um, you know, anti and pro sides were very, very active. And they were all using this blogging technology. And I suddenly realized all it was, was suddenly it was super easy to make a website. Whereas up until then, I mean, you, you had to still get past, you had to at least know how to do HTML. You know, you had to know some right. stuff to put together a website. Suddenly you didn't have to know very much stuff at all. And I thought, oh, great, now I can start a media company again and it's not going to cost me a penny. You know, there's no printing fees and the software is free. Um, and so I just really started it as a hobby and I, I wanted to keep my sort of hand in the Chinese media. So I started following... Uh, the Chinese media industry and writing about it and then translating from the Chinese media. And 2003 was a really special year for media in China. It was really, the, in some ways, the height of the sort of freedom of the press as much as it has been in all the time that you know, I've known China since 1995. That was the year that the Nanfang Zhou Mo, the Southern, uh, uh, Southern Weekend, uh, did its famous expose of Sun Zhegang, the guy who was killed in police... Um, the migrant worker uh, who was migrant killed, worker in, custody, was killed right? in police custody. And you know, this article actually you know, led to regulatory changes. And uh, there was this extraordinary optimism amongst my Chinese friends who were journalists that things were opening up and this is post SARS this is you know now we're already in the the uh, the Hu Jintao and Wujaba era the Olympics are coming up so a lot of people are hopeful about that um, you know and it wasn't just media I mean many aspects of civil society it looked like the government was going to tolerate a, an expansion you know NGOs a big one uh, rights lawyers I mean this was the height of the rights lawyers from 2003 to about you know 06 or so, yeah. yeah 06 crack, no, I no. mean I think everything you know the Wen Ming Banwang the civilized internet campaign started in 2006 and one of the best known interviewees uh, I interviewed that year Muzume the sex blogger she said you know it's all over <laughs> and she was kind of right well it lived <laughs> on for another decade there. though yeah, but, I mean or almost another but um, you know 2006 I think if you were observant you would have seen that this wasn't going to last ah right right so what was the fate then of Danway? I mean, because what you were doing, too, I, I think it was just a terrific service. Not only did you have really good feature writing by quite a few pr quite prominent 
observers of China, but you also did these, uh, you would look at, you do comparisons of the, the, the covers of major uh, Chinese newspapers during the day, and then re- very valuable translations of some of the important stories from them. Uh, it was a, a terrific service. Well, you guys were getting 30,000 page views a day sometimes and uh, doing doing very, very well. And uh, you... Uh, you made videos too? You made, yeah. So yeah, two of the things, I don't know if you remember, I mean, you can still find these things on YouTube and I, I, I heartily in, encourage you to check them out. No, if you don't. No, do. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy used to do this series, which I, I actually think of as sort of the, the bridge between what Jeremy was doing with Dan Wei and when we started Seneca, it was sort of the, the thing in between. It was these hard hat shows. He would put on one of these yellow construction uh, hats and he would sit in uh, and, and, and do these sort of um, man on the street interviews where he'd say, you know, I'm Jeremy Goldcorn and I'm here. At the, and he'd do, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't uh, butcher your accent. But it, it was very funny. I mean, you should check them out. They're, they're, they're very good. Terrific soundtrack to them. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And a uh, really great kind of punky kind of uh, driving uh guitar riff thing and then the other was Anne sophie lowenberg and yeah. you did this series called sexy beijing check these out they're really very very funny it's about this uh sort of can you describe well, well a jewish i mean woman anna sophie's kind of like a neurotic la jewish lady right one of my best friends um with so these I'm kind of say that. lisa Loeb glasses um, but and, she uh, does look a little bit like um what's her name jessica shimmer parker the sex in the city actress sure um Sarah, uh, at least her uh her friends her chinese friends often used to t- say that to her so uh, the shtick was it was kind of like a parody of Sex and the City and she'd be like you know I wonder will I ever find a Chinese boyfriend and you know then she'd go around asking kind of embarrassing questions to like old Chinese people like how did you meet your husband and did, were you in love and they'd say things like no our parents chose us for us love what are you talking about you know? <laughs> she'd get very interesting responses out of people and it was a very fun approachable way to sort of learn about China so I thought it was terrific I mean we should think about resurrecting something like that, that I think that'd be a lot of fun for yeah. China. Um, anyway, but what, we, you left, like I said, you left, tell me about that way getting blocked. When did that happen and, and what were the circumstances of it? Do you know what you did to trigger it? Or? Yeah, I, uh, no, I don't know what I did to trigger it. Um, I do know that I was trying to sell it to the Guardian at that point and it was, um, it was, uh, I think, it, I, yeah, so that was 2009 in the summer July, it was two days before the riots in Urumqi. It was July the 2nd. I don't know what I'd done before that, but Sorry. I was all excited. I, 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 I was talking to the Guardian newspaper about selling it to them. They had a ton of money at that point. It was before they lost all their money in the financial crisis. And um, everything was great in my life. And I had this great new girlfriend who's now my wife. And we decided to go on a holiday to Italy to meet my parents in Umbria. And, you know, I was the happiest man in the universe. And I get to Italy, and you know we're sitting in Umbria, and like overlooking some beautiful you know, vineyard or something. And I get a text message from my colleague Joel in Beijing: "The site is blocked." And anyway, then the financial crisis, no Guardian sale, and you know I had to. I, I had up until that point actually believed that I could make a, a sort of media business out of it that would be either rely on subscriptions or advertising, and that somehow I was going to be let alone to get away with it in China um, because clearly looking back I was totally crazy um, you know if I saw someone in that situation today I'd say go get your head red mate you know but um, uh, 
suddenly I realized that, no, that wasn't the case. And then I got back to Beijing and I had to figure out what to do with my life, that my baby had just basically been not killed, but asphyxiated. Um, and uh, so we started, we'd always done, like, you know, the site never really made money. Um, so we'd always done other things to make money. Uh, we sometimes had job ads, you know, things would pay, but the, the actual bread on the table never came from the media operation. We did things like, um, you know, creative financing techniques, I, I suppose you could call them. Um, live like, shows, maybe. <laughs> well, we did some live shows, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the thing that really kept the business going, to be honest, was, you know, one of these wonderful things about China in the 90s and the 2000s was um, to... to to run a legal business to take payment in China, you need something called a fa piao, you know, a tax receipt. And if you do work as a subcontractor, you know, a freelancer, whatever, for any company, if they want to write that expense off, you know, against tax, they have to produce a fa piao. And at the time, with all these slackers that you were mentioning in Beijing, these kind of foreign slackers, and then increasing numbers of Chinese slackers, none of them were like uh, entrepreneurial enough to get their own company, and they needed five hours to, you know, charge companies for their photography or their video work or you know, advertising, copywriting. And I had the five hour, so I would come to this arrangement where I would process the five hour for them, and I'd take twelve percent and. I'd give them a, like, I would say, I can do it, but it's going to take three months or six months to pay. So basically, that was how I financed Dunway wow. for most of its life. But the one thing that did actually make real money was research work. Um, and so after it was blocked, we focused on that. Right. And eventually you sold it to the Financial Times. Yes. Right. And, and that happened in 2012 or 13, is that right? 13. 2013. But uh, during that time, I, I, I'd say like, after, after Dunway was blocked, there was a noticeable change in your attitudes about the Chinese Communist Party, about, uh, about China sort of more generally. I, at least I thought so. And that was around the time that we were thinking of, we, we started Seneca in uh, 2010. And there was already there, very quickly kind of dynamic between the two of us. You were, I was the one who was sort of sunnier and always trying to, you know, glass half, half full. You were always sort of the more, and, and none of that was really that performed either, right? Uh, what, what happened to you? Was that, do you think a lot of that was just sort of your own personal experience with Danway? Because, you know, what strikes me as very odd is that you, you, when you leave China, it's in a period where China is clearly on a pretty dark trajectory. And suddenly Jeremy, living in sunny Nashville, Tennessee, is, is kind of, we, we almost would switch places, I felt like. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, personal experience obviously has a lot to do with <clears throat> one's okay. attitudes. Uh, having my website blocked uh, was, you know, but you and everybody, right? I mean, yes, but it was me. Okay, you know, sure, that had something to do with it. I mean, I, I think the. Um, the worsening, I mean, you know, there were other things like, you know, wh wh one of the th things I really loved over the, the last, you know, few years of the first decade of the 21st century was the China blogger conferences, which oh, are right. these amazing gatherings of like, you know, kind of tech nerds. And they ended up being this extraordinary combination of like geeks and nerds and software people and human rights lawyers and, you know, um, activists uh, of all activists, sorts, yeah. you know, and, environmentalists and feminists, you know, and, yeah, yeah. and I mean that was at its height in 2008 in in Guangzhou, and there were secret police there filming us and everything. But you know they let us do the thing. The next year, 
they couldn't get permission to do it anywhere except a place called Lianzhou, which is in the far west of Guangzhou. And it was literally in a cave. <laughs> it happened to be a cave that the local guy who was a buddy with one of the organizers was the, in charge of the tourism department and wanted some publicity, which is why he agreed to do this. Presumably they wired it up with Wi-Fi too. Otherwise, I mean, it was a damn cave. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, after that... Uh, I just remember seeing many of those activists and lawyers being picked off one by one, you know, either silenced or disappeared and detained. Or co-opted. Or co-opted. Yeah, I mean, Isaac you know, Mao ended up being like a rich venture capitalist. Well, he that. always was. I mean, I, I, you know, I won't say anything about Isaac Mao. Great guy. Great guy, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, but um, it wasn't just me. There were, things started to seem that they were going, at least, you know, my friends and, and the things I was interested in were getting much more difficult to do. And really decent people, I thought, were being stopped from being doing really decent things. And I, I think the general political atmosphere, um, you know, did deteriorate. Uh, deteriorate. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it was that too. Yeah. yeah. I, I also honestly think I'd been living in Beijing for 20 two, years, at that, 20 point. years yeah. at that point. And, uh, you know, I was getting to the point where, I don't know, you have to have a certain mental toughness to be happy in Beijing. You have to not let it bug you if um, you know, you're coming out of an elevator and all the people on the outside of the elevator rush in before the people inside are getting out. And I was becoming one of those kind of people who was like on a hair trigger like temper and I was worried one day you know, somebody was going to push me in the elevator and I just like punch them or you know, do something outrageous. Well, it's good that you got out. <laughs> and that's when I thought, no, I've got to leave. So, I mean, I think some of it was personal and some of it was political. Jeremy, I remember we were having a beer one day in Silent Hill in like 97 and I think I said to you, you know what I really like about this place is the slow pace of life. Yeah. It's hard to believe how much it changed in that time. Look, uh, you're somebody who's neither from the United States nor from China originally, but I would count you as quite a Sinophile and an Americophile. You're, you've always enthused about uh, the United States. You've all had a sp- sort of special affection for it. But surely it must bother you a bit that so much of the, the, the focus, ha- you know, not, not just here in the United States or in China, but so much of the focus on China is about China and its relationship with the United States. I mean, that takes such an outsized role. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it used to annoy me. Um, I mean, it, it used to annoy me the way Americans always kind of assume your baseline for normalcy is an American. Right. You know? I, I still get asked this question. I mean, even speaking with my accent, when did you move back to America? You know, uh, because that's just... But, you know, Chinese people and American people, I think, are very similar in this way. They, uh, you know, they only really see their own country and the other big one. Um, no, it's true. So I, I think, you know, the Chinese people taught me to be tolerant of American kind of um, self-centeredness. I've, I've often thought that the United States and China are more alike than almost any other two countries I'm aware of. They're the two countries in the world where people really go through life believing it's fine to speak just one language. They kind of have this, they harbor this fantasy that they are self-sufficient ultimately, that they, they can exist in isolation from uh, the other and from the rest of the damn world. Uh, but I think they're also alike in, in, in good ways, too. They both have this kind of basic belief in meritocracy that just sort of just grit and determination and, uh, is going to get you somewhere in life. And 
they're fundamentally decent and hard kind of work, nice for good high, work yeah, ethic. good work yeah. ethics and yeah um, so yeah i i realize that I, I mean the food sadly one can't compare but that's changing in this country so for the better you know, it's changing very much in this country i i keep discovering these amazing chinese restaurants here anyway uh <laughs> The, the, it's one of the great things. It was one of the things that I think I, I worry most about with this new sort of um, McCarthyist crackdown that will the restaurateurs flee if that happens, then I might have to leave. <laughs> it's just, it's, it, it'll be just untenable here. Uh, what do you miss most then about Beijing? And not, not besides the food. The food and the friends. Yeah, right, 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 right. Everyone says food and friends. Right, right. Um, aside from food and friends. Um, I mean, I, I miss the sense of standing, you know, having like an observer's seat, you know, being able to watch history being made unfold in front of your, in front of your face, just about. Right. Somehow, that front row seat you know, is amazing. even, you know, Washington, D.C., you don't get the same feeling. And I don't know why that is. I mean, I think some of it's because perhaps the government is so in your face. So if there's a military parade, you know, you get an announcement saying, don't go on your balcony for the next two weeks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but it's That's exciting. That's kind of like Washington now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess Washington is going that way. Yeah. Um. <laughs> what did Jim McGregor said? It, China is a place where every day you see something you don't see every day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, no, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, the, the other thing, I guess, is the sort of can-do, like the, the, the speed at which people are willing to do things if they think they can make some money. Like, you know, I, uh, you go into a store, I needed to buy a, um, a fridge uh, the other day, and I go into the Lowe's, the store, they have a lot of fridges, there's a fridge, I choose the fridge. Oh, no, they don't have that one in stock. When can you deliver it? Three weeks. August the 7th. I'm like, what? what? <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? You know, I, I, I really miss that. You know, I miss moving house in China where in the morning I'd call up, you know, the like, uh, you know, exactly, the people who used to do the, you know, the Central Academy of Drama and be right. like, hey, I'm moving house at 2 p.m. today. Can you send a truck? Sure. <laughs> there's like eight guys in a truck come at 2 p.m. Like and, you, and then they 250 quiet. <laughs> it's like, all right. You know, yeah, I miss that. Yeah, I, I do yeah. miss that too. That, that's it's sort of Chinese can-do spirit. Um, Americans have a can-do spirit, but it's different. We had a uh, a tree fall on part of my house almost a year ago, and it's still not not restored completely. It's just unbelievable how slow stuff gets done here. Yeah. It's just all these permits and all this. I mean, which is the, the truly bureaucratic state? I actually I, I often wonder. Uh, anyway, I, I did promise that we would get some questions from the audience. So maybe if if anyone has something, uh, walk up and, and and speak into the mic. I'll hand you over. Anyone want to come up? Oh, here we yeah yeah come on. It's our very own Shifra Parkin. Hi, Jeremy. Um, so I just had a question for you regarding the current generation of China watchers and how they're fundamentally different. And they've had a very different experience learning about China since like 2012 when the Xi Jinping rise kind of dramatically changed the tenor of how Beijing was interacting with foreigners. And I was just kind of curious if you have a perspective on the waves of China watchers themselves and how that's kind of evolved over time to a very interesting dynamic now where the young people are the hawks and the old people are the doves. And I'm just kind of curious if you have a perspective on that. That's funny because that was exactly the question that I was going to ask you last. But oh, okay, well, Thanks yeah, I mean that. that, that uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a bit of a genera- generation gap, and uh, you know, like with many generation gaps discussed these days, as Generation X, we, I think we kind of sit in the middle, the poor ignored Generation X that nobody's ever cared about, um, and maybe that's because we're just really the dreg end of the boomers, and we haven't done anything no, for ourselves. No, we are not like the boomers. Um, 
Uh, but, uh, you know, aside from the broader generation gap that may exist, you know, between millennials and us, um, I do think there's been very different experiences. I mean, you know, the, the, the Beijing that we were waxing nostalgic about, I mean, that was a fun time to be in Beijing. You know, the last few years in Beijing, not only aren't you going to start a website, you know, in a fashion that I just described to you that, you know, is unconventional to say the least and have a lot of fun doing it and not get into any serious trouble. But now, you know, there was, in fact, an example of this on, on Twitter the other day. Michael Swain, who signed the letter of scholars he actually calling wrote, China. wrote the letter, really. He, he, he wrote the, the letter, basically, uh, you know, asking the U.S. government not to treat China like an enemy. He had a Twitter exchange with Elliot Zagman, a guy, a young, talented writer. He's written for us and writes, you know, for a lot of publications on China. And they were talking about this generation gap. And the example Elliot sort of brought up on Twitter, he said, well, for example, have you ever been in a legal establishment on a Saturday night when the police come in and make everybody urinate in a cup, you know, for a drug test? You know, so, Fair I point, mean, yeah. younger people are experiencing a lot more of the harsh end of, 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 of the Communist Party, you know, you know, whereas compared to us, I mean, I had the same treatment. Well, I've driving been detained many times, but and right. let go with a not, you know, not even a, uh, a tap on the, the wrist, really. I mean, you know, well, you know, I don't know about you, but me, <laughs> I, <laughs> I never got into real trouble. Yeah. But you know, I mean, you can get into real trouble now for things that we, sure, you know, or, or would not have raised an eyelid. 10 years ago, you know, for having the wrong visa and teaching English, people are, you know, getting sent to detention, uh, administrative detention for two right. weeks. Um, I, I think there's some of that. I, I think there is also the fact that, um, you know, through the 90s and the early parts of the 21st century in the, in the run-up to the Olympics and before the financial crisis, I mean, there was generally a lot more optimism about China in the United States and in Europe and its... Uh, political course that it was opening up and it did seem to be liberalizing. I mean, p people put way too much hope on the Olympics. Of course, it was kind of ludicrous to think that, you know, after the Olympics, China would suddenly become a representative democracy or something. But th that was kind of in the air. And so there was a lot of optimism. And, you know, the Chinese government were still running with it. You know, uh, Zhu Rongji's reforms worked out and they basically thought, we have here a recipe that's working, let's go. And they didn't really micromanage in, in, in many things. So, I mean, that was just a lot of fun to be there. Yeah. From the financial crisis, the, the party got a lot more, you know, there was that swagger that we've talked about or what you used to call the new truculence where um, suddenly it seemed that at least the Communist Party was not interested in hearing anybody else's point of view. Um, and since 2009, I mean, that, that, from an outside perspective, I think has got worse and worse and worse. So you see these younger China scholars, I mean, they've never really had that sense of optimism, or at least it was crushed very quickly compared right, right, to right. older folks who've... On the other hand, older folks also remember, I mean, even what it was like in the 90s when, you know, you had to get your work unit's permission to get married. And, That's you know, right. when you, you remember could, You how, could get dragged out for, for cohabiting with a, a Chinese woman or something like yes, that. Yes, right? you could. You could get arrested for that. Oh, you yeah. know, you, you could get arrested for being gay. I mean, you know, sure. you could get locked up in a mental asylum. I mean, there's so many areas that China's made progress that I think some of the youngsters don't really understand, whereas some of the older people, uh, you know, they have a in some ways, a better perspective. Yeah, it's but a real trade-off. I, I, I also do think, I mean, the things I was saying earlier about the need to, you know, speak the truth, I mean, I do think that a lot of the older China watchers have fallen into some fairly lazy habits of mind where there's a certain way of talking about China that 
can be very off-putting to the younger people because they think like you're not telling the truth. You know, I think one example, a very clear example of this, and we talked about this in that podcast with Michael, was the, the letter from the scholars. They didn't mention Xinjiang. And I mean, I think I fell in the younger person's camp of this, but I, 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 you know, the reaction was almost uniform, I noticed, about those younger China watcher types who commented on it. They were like, why didn't you mention Xinjiang? Well, if you're going to, to lay out a litany of, of China's sins, that seems to be the, the biggest, and why, why ignore that? No, I, I would agree with you on that, you know, for sure. I, I, and I'm not saying who's wrong or right, I'm, but I, I think that's... that's the difference in the generations. I don't know. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. You falling on the younger side of the divide, you have the right to tell me I'm a stupid old man and I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right. Let's take, let's take at least one more here. Anyone have one? In the back here. Come on up. Oh, um, I'm Alexa. I'm a nursing student at Columbia. Um, I really appreciate you guys sort of talking around your experience of moving from Beijing um, back to the U.S. or to the U.S., um, and I also just moved from Beijing um, two months ago, and I did basically all of my 20s there, all of my early 20s. So I guess my question is, what is your advice for sort of practical ways to make dividends on the China experience or continue to engage when, um, at least for me, my current sort of career outlook doesn't naturally go along with um, China watching? It's a great question, Alexa. Jeremy, take a crack. Well, if you're living in New York, I think, you know, um, you're lucky because there's so much going on. So, I mean, obviously, you should come to all our sub-China events and subscribe to our newsletter, (laughs) (laughs) including our paid newsletter. (laughs) Shameless and Um, well done. um, But, I I mean, I think that's – you've got to stay engaged with the news. uh, And whatever language you've got from your your time there, you know, work on it. Keep it up. Um, and New York has plenty of groups, Chinese-speaking groups. And, you know, thankfully, Chinese is now one of the languages of the city. You know, it really is. I mean, you cannot go anywhere in Brooklyn and Manhattan without hearing people speaking Mandarin. So I, I would say, you know, try and keep the language. That's really work on the language. Put a lot of attention into that. And then just stay on top of the news. I mean, I think maybe things, you know, I, I hope things are different in like 10 years' time and there might start to be like deeper cooperation between US and China. And I think the life sciences, medicine, uh, you know, this is one area of, obvious one area yeah. of optimism. So, I mean, I think you should keep your hand in it, in the game, if you can. Absolutely. There are great resources like this, the Beijing Club of New York. Uh, they've got a very active uh, group here. Uh, they turn out to our events pretty frequently. You should check them out. Uh, yeah, New York is a really easy... I mean, it's it's much harder when you're in the middle of the country uh, and there aren't those sorts of communities. But uh, really anywhere on the West Coast or on the East Coast, it's it's not too hard to stay connected. Yes, come on up. Um, hi, I'm Theo. Uh, I also came back from Beijing recently. I just wanted to ask if you could tell us a story about like any kind of experience you had uh, where you felt like you kind of leveled up in terms of your understanding of China or Chinese culture? Um, well, well, I mean... Leveled up is uh, young people speak. <laughs> <laughs> I, ca- I can guess what it means. Okay. Um, wow. I, I mean, I think the first year that I described, that was the big level up because I went from zero understanding to, you know, being able to sort of communicate in the language and having an idea of uh, what was going on. Um, You know, I think the most important thing I did was travel a lot outside of the big cities, outside of Beijing and Shanghai especially. Um, That really made a difference because if you stay in Beijing and Shanghai, you get a very, very, like, warped idea of what 
China's like. And the countryside and the smaller towns teach you a whole other thing. And they kind of teach you what's, in some ways, is really going on in the country because that's like the real stuff. That's where the future is, in a way. You, you know? sound like an American Democrat after 2016. <laughs> No, but no, you're, you're right. But it's, it's for good and for bad, right? I mean, it's not just that everything is better in Beijing. And no, some things are worse. Right, no, no, I mean, that's, that's it. You, uh, know, the, you see dead bodies on the street in the countryside that people are just driving past and not picking up because nobody wants to get involved. You know, that kind of, you see the bad things too. Right. And then, of course, you, you, know, you meet these wonderful characters in the middle of nowhere who are smart and sophisticated, and you think, how did you learn to speak such good French in the middle of Guizhou? <laughs> <laughs> Well, th thank you, Jeremy, and thanks for everyone for coming. Let's, let's hear it for our, our, our dear editor-in-chief, Jeremy Goldcorn. I hope I don't get fired after some of those confessions. <laughs> I'm, uh, is this job safe? <laughs> oh, okay. Confessions of an opium eater. Uh, okay. That was a long time ago, and he has not repeated. The Cynical Podcast so, okay. is powered by SubChina and is a proud okay. part of the Cynical Thanks, Alpha Network. Thanks, Our show is Thank produced you. by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McDonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, key voices, and ta for ta and the Middle Earth podcast on the culture industry in China. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.